You're listening to Ladies Do Podcasts. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is the monthly podcast to accompany the Ladies Do Comics meetings at the Rag Factory on Henyard Street off Brick Lane in East London. This month, we have a couple of talks recorded a couple of weeks ago, Ladies Do Comics meeting, in which Dr. Anne Miller, academic, writer, and joint editor of European Comic Art, talks about portrayals of the female body in French bande dessinée, and British cartoonist Carrie Fransman talks about her graphic novel The House That Groaned, which tells the story of various characters living in a terrace house who all have various issues to do with identity and body. First, here's Dr. Miller. Critique is tended to focus on three areas. 
um, mechanisms of power that regulate the body, internalization of those mechanisms, and representations. Okay. So if we start with the mechanisms of power, a lot of feminists, in particular American feminists, which we want to call, who reminds us in these documents that power functions less through repression than through techniques, normalization, and control. And amongst these, he includes what he calls the hystericization of the body of the woman, who is believed to be highly sexual and so particularly subject to regulation and pathologization. And Sandra Lee Barkey, an American feminist, goes into some detail about the disciplinary practices of femininity, and she points out that while no one's actually marched off for electrolysis or electrolysis at gunpoint, these practices do amount nonetheless to a kind of system of micropower that's essentially non-egalitarian and asymmetrical. <coughs> Foucault himself also emphasises the internalisation of the apparatus of surveillance through which docile bodies are produced. He says that the person under surveillance becomes his or her own surveyor. Um, I've just taken that translation, um, I've changed it. Um, people, when they translate Foucault, they tend to think that he always uses he. Well, he actually doesn't, it's a translation to do that, so I wanted to keep Feminist readings of this work have stressed the extent to which women internalise a male gaze, and Barclay refers to a generalised male witness who comes to, to uh, structure a woman's consciousness of herself as a bodily being. And given the impossibility of meeting standards of acceptability, this consciousness can't fail to leave women with a feeling of bodily deficiency. Now, a politics of the body, as Laura Mulvey says, uh, has always led logically to a politics of representation of the body, and therefore into the tyranny of political aesthetics. Feminists have long drawn attention to the key role of images and representations in creating the norms that are built into the structure of selfhood. Susan Bordeaux, for example, said that the rules of femininity have come to be culturally transmitted more and more to the standardised visual patterns <coughs> from which you could look at. And as a result, femininity itself has come to be largely a matter of constructing the appropriate surface presentation of the self. Representations don't, of course, have a direct effect on bodies, but to quote Judith Williamson, the imagery and the experience of femininity are completely mixed up. And although, or possibly even because, women have achieved a greater measure of economic and social equality, the range of bodies on visual display and deemed acceptable has become, in the early 21st century, even narrower, and the display itself has become pervasive. And these are bodies that are at once highly sexualized and highly unlike the bodies of most real-life grown-up women. Uh, Margaret Dickman uses the term no-sexualization <laughs> in recognition of the globalized nature of the increasingly evolutionary presentation of women's bodies in public spaces, a phenomenon referred to by others, notably by Brian McNair, as um, the pornographization of everyday life, or porno chic. Now, both the banality and the sheer oddness of this come through in an incident recounted by old people, right, French, uh, a French Romanesque artist. She's arranged to meet a friend, right, and they're able to locate each other because each of them is standing in front of an arse, or a pit of an arse. And the friend that you'll see is actually standing in front of a male arse. But in case you think this represents some kind of equal treatment for men and women, Pico also recounts her 
uh, working as an advocate for an advertising firm, and the magazines that you can see lying around the floor, uh, I'm actually made up names, but they might as well be real. They're called things like Compute, which is whore, Gunas, which is something like stupid cow. Um, so, porno culture might be presented by, it is presented by Brian McNair, as he calls it a democratisation of desire, but in fact it's unmistakably driven with gender inequality. Uh, people, in fact, turns out not to be very good at the job. Right. She gets criticised by her boss. Her boss has got a much better eye of where to place the condos screen in my picture. Um, and there's no tolerance of criticism in the job. You're not motivated to represent women in this way, and you lose your job. Now, we're going to return to Vegas, Penelope. Um, I described her as a post-feminist. Post-feminism moves away from the feminist problematic of gender and power, how power over bodies is exercised, and how the regulatory framework is internalised. The post-feminist discourse is all about empowerment, right? Empowerment and agency um, achieved through self-sexualization and freely adopted objectification, along with an obsessive concern for disciplining the body. Coy and Gardner put it like this. In Western Europe, we live in a socio-sexual climate where some young women perceive that a positive self-identity can be built on reclaiming the sexualized portrayals that modern feminism has sought to challenge. Um, they are, in fact, sociologists, and they've got just some fabulous statistic about how something like you know, nine out of ten seven-year-olds see their future career as being glamour models. Right? Anyway, uh, this is kind of Vegas' portrayal of her life itself. Right? Um, the surveillance of the male gaze isn't a problem for Vegas. It's actually part of the process of empowerment, right? It turns her from being unsexy to sexy, right? Um, so generalised, you can see at the beginning, right, um, she's feeling sort of not very sexy, and then he comes along and says, visit Hansant, you're beautiful, and then she turns into this kind of sexy chick. Okay. So the generalised male witness that Sandra Lee Barclay talks about, that she turns up in person to guarantee that she's up to standard, now, critically, in the world of post-feminism, the ideology of individual choice is never associated with any kind of wider political context. Politics does actually intrude on one occasion into Penelope's world, but it's represented here as being completely outdated, the kind of spotty guy that she's talking to, kind of malleable stuff about imperialism and what have is a kind of throwback to hippism, you know, he's asking her for Rizla papers there. Post-feminist discourse is post-political, but of course that political climate, which is actually far too boring for Penelope to contemplate, really does exist. An increasingly harsh economic climate and a move towards privatisation. Rosalind Hill says of this: the neoliberal subject is required. To, neoliberal subjects are required to see themselves as entrepreneurial actors, no matter how severe the constraints economic, social, or political economic actions. And she talks about a post-feminist subtext that no longer views women as oppressed, but rather as able to make free choices in a marketplace of consumer identities or styles, with porno sheep among them. Now, for Bangier, there's a kind of double process of commoditization, because her self-portrayal demonstrates, and not in any way critically, precisely the process of making her sellable, packaged into a book and that's in fact the new you know, uh, edition, which is uh, got even more um, 
bits and pieces to it, uh, which itself becomes highly saleable. I will say about a bit about how she uses the comics format, okay? Um, the verbal visual aspect of it, the fact that the self is drawn, and the fact that the self is multiple. Okay. Now, the verbal visual aspect of the comics format allows her to accompany the images with ironic knowingness. Right? Irony is very much a post-feminist mode, as it indeed it is that of the lad's mags, or which is a mode of autonomy from La Presse de Charlemagne, okay? um, lad's mags. Uh, she reminds us of here the kind of urgent need to restock on Tarte's underwear, that's what she calls it, culotte, uh, she's got her old, uh, old knickers on, and she needs to go out and get to la lingerie de quetin, whore's underwear she needs to get. Right? Um, she also, um, yeah, she has to sort of submit to the discipline of exercise. She's saying here, how long will it take me to become hyper bonus. Bonus is a word that's coming to French, it, it used to mean um, sort of goody goody, right? It's coming, it's, the meaning is slightly changed. If you look it up on the internet, you will uh, be directed to a lot of porn videos. It's a very sort of super sexy hot. Yeah. How long will it take her to become like that? Right. Um, discipline, also depilation, unbearable violence that she puts herself through is the violence of mutilation her legs. Um, and she only actually draws herself with about three hairs from her. You know, yeah. um, the irony that she deploys sometimes shades into a kind of provocation, right? She calls this one, the headline here is Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And the point of this one is that she wears this kind of little girly dress and she can get her way with men, right? And so where other cartoons, like, for example, Julie Doucet or Caroline Suri or various others, uh, are attacking the normative body imposed by patriarchy, Bagheer, in the name of post-feminism, is fighting against a kind of new puritanism, which is upheld, she believes, by feminists, who would presumably disapprove of this kind of lolita. In an interview in the journal Dimanche, right, she says, um, I get inflammatory emails that accuse me of betraying the cause of girls, not women, because that could be she, girls, uh, because my characters wear nice shoes. Okay. So, you know, this is the, the, what she has in mind, this notion of the feminist is kind of moralizing and censorious. Okay. So, um, in order to find out some comments, by definition, obviously, the soul has to be drawn. Some other women comics artists opt for a kind of minimalism, that's the case of old people, uh, or a disguise, okay, this is nice, Nadja, right? Um, others opt for a deliberately grotesque self-portrayal, celebrating the non-normative body. This is the famous running out of contacts in it, which drowns out the entire city. Well, I'm assuming. It goes back to some of the earliest female comic performances like Aline Kalinsky. Now, Mary Rousseau glosses Bactine in describing the grotesque body as the open, protruding, extended, secreting body. And she opposes it to the classical body, which she describes as being monumental, static, closed, and sleek, corresponding to the aspirations of worldwide individualism. Well, but you don't have a kind of cartoon way, do you? But she is indeed static, closed, 
and seek, right? There's none of the kind of messy line that someone like Ducey or Siri uh, uses. And above all, she draws herself as completely coinciding with enormity of image with a cute chick. Right? She always has huge eyes. She very often has no mouth, she's got a tiny waist, long legs, and a focus on breasts and arse that are kind of curvy enough but not excessive. And this is when she's out with her nephew, right? Um, <laughs> her sense of self seems to be completely tied up with what Rosalind Gill has called a technology of sexiness, achieved through body shape, pose, exercise, decollation, and clothes. Apart from the occasional wraps, like worn-out knickers, or here, a sports bra. And this is the occasion of a rape joke, okay? Um, when she wears her sports bra, she's not sexy enough to attract a rapist. Now, um, comic art also, of course, demands that the text, the text itself should be depicted multiple times. Charles Hatfield, uh, who's written a brilliant book about comics that I highly recommend to everybody, I'm putting it, has argued that successive versions of the drawn self, inherent in the comics format, allow for what he calls ironic authenticity by admitting that the core identity can't actually be represented. And by, by doing that, the artist asserts himself or herself to be truthful. This is obviously the case of the brilliant artist like Jenny Goblet, right? Um, who draws herself, you know, her, her self image kind of comes to you in very different ways. Now, Vagueur also necessarily produces multiple versions of herself, she's a comics artist. Um, here, right, she specifically sets out six contrasting versions of herself demonstrating that she's capable of adopting different identities by skillfully combining different outfits, which, as she said, speak for her, with a repertoire of postures and gestures. Now, you know, is this the authenticity that comes from an ironic recognition that there's no essential self, or is it just more a question of turning itself into a commodity? Could we conceivably regard Begler's project as partaking of the masquerade, right, which along with Duke Butler's later theorization of gender as performance is a key term in feminist aesthetics, or a psychoanalytic discourse in a famous article by Mary Ann Jones in 1982. Uh, Mary Russo takes up the term in 1986, and she gives it this definition, the masquerade means deliberately assumed and foregrounded femininity as a mask to put on femininity with a vengeance suggests the power of taking it off. Right? And Laura Mulvey is the turn of her analysis of the work of Cindy Sherman from the 1970s. Um, Sherman's work seemed to subvert dominant representations of femininity by re-representing them. And the very well-known series of photographic stills, I'm sure you're very familiar with them, uh, shown herself in various poses, vaguely evoking scenes from films, succeeded when they were first exhibited in creating considerable unease in the spectator. He was invited to decode signs into complete fragmentary narrative, and in so doing, forced to interrogate his or her own anxieties and fantasies about women. However, in the 1980s, along came Madonna with a lot more commercial appeal than Cindy Sherman, and the notion of masquerade has kind of been recuperated in empowering, what else, capacity for self-reinvention with the deliberate reappropriation of patriarchal constructions of femininity, including virgin and whore. However, feminist artists, including comics artists, have still deployed the masquerade in a critical way, 
and none more so than Jean Doucet, who has the fabulous striptease, which I think some of you will know, published in album format in 1993. So the parodically fetishized view of femininity put on after she divested herself of men's clothes, assuredly performed, but then it's taken off in a quite magical way. So, um, she takes off the um, clothes and then she starts taking off it's her body. So anybody expecting that the veil will be lifted on the mystery of the eternal feminine will get both more and less than they bargained for. Now, Beverly's multiple selves may be shown to be constructed and performed, but they seem really to be no more than a series of kind of pre-packaged consumer objects if you compare them with what Dusset is doing, and carefully labelled, considerably tamer than those taken up by Madonna, in fact, and notably without the queer sensibility that Madonna displays. And the most interesting thing about them is actually, it's shocking, it's shocking. The most interesting thing about them is what's excluded, what's repressed in the text. The facility of her graphic line, the great confidence of her graphic line, do seem to suggest a kind of impermeable, smooth surface that nothing could break through. Uh, there seems to be nothing untoward, kind of bubbling underneath. Right? Maybe there might be some sort of transgressiveness associated with sex. Well, there doesn't seem to be. I mean, although she draws herself as looking like a kind of hot chick, you know, there's little evidence that she experiences sexual desire. Her boyfriend seems to be a accessory. They do have sex once, their clothes on, this becomes some kind of fantasy fuck. Um, but it seems to conflict with her love of wearing red lipstick. That's a joke here, right? So they have to stop. Um, the word desire occurs once in her book, but it's in the negative, and it refers to a possible break on her spending power, right? Um, she does not desire the receipt when she goes to the cash machine, and the authority figure who prevents her from giving free rein to her passion for spending money is in fact a woman, banker, okay? So pleasure and transgression in this would seem to be focused around money and consumption, mainly to buy the folk. And she owns up to the transgressiveness of overspending, right? And having these girlish confessions of guilt, you know, she used in handbags to clothes, all of that, right? So you know, is there really nothing else? Is there nothing kind of repressive? Is there no unconscious of the text? Well, there is. And we've seen that politics is repressed. Um, what else? Well, I think that what is really at issue here and what kind of breaks through is just a profound bodily anxiety. And it's something that goes much deeper than all this kind of joking stuff about how exercise is higher and manipulation of pain and all that. Okay. Um, this anxiety is in fact so deep that it surfaces in the context of the book. Right? This is the cover, a front of the inside cover page. Um, inside flight, so um, this is a kind of motif of cakes, right? You get it on the inner and outer flyleaves. They're all bathed in this kind of nice girl pink. But I think we all know that they're not to do with enjoyment, they're to do with food as a kind of ever-present threat. Right? Okay. Um, it also, this body anxiety gets displaced onto others. She never draws herself as overweight. This is another body, this is not hers. But it's also, if you like, an other body. It's grotesque, partly because it's overweight, 
but more especially, I think, because it seems to be working class, you know, um, so the is inscribed on it, make it repellent to her, it's kind of doubly abject. However, that is nothing compared to the terror of the aging body, right? Now, when she draws herself as how she thinks her breasts will look when she's 40, she doesn't actually show them, right? She covers them up. She never draws herself as any kind of sign of aging at all. But she has extreme reactions to saleswomen who imply that she looks up with saleswomen because her madame, right? This completely freaks her out, right? And this one here, who slips in a little tube of anti-aging, anti-wrinkle cream uh, into the bag of some beauty products that she's bought. Um, she, you know, she has this very cruel portrayal of the woman, which she calls a poutiasse, which is pretty insulting, you know, stupid cow kind of thing. Okay. Here, she draws a line with elderly people uh, in a post office, right? Uh, most of them are women. I think the second from front one is probably a man, but all the others are women, right? And she can't even look at them, right? But there she is. There's her body in this drawing alongside them. And I think this is the most telling image of all, in fact. Um, in relation to some of Cindy Sherman's later work, where she abandons the glamour of her earlier images, Laura Mulder talks about the way that the female body has come to be used as a metaphor for the division between surface allure and concealed decay. She alludes to the myth that the enchantress turned hag, which has often been used as a figure for the essence beneath the appearance, for the truth behind falsehood. Right? So here, Bagheur really does tap into, I think, some kind of unconscious fantasies that underlie images of the female body. And she hints that much more is at stake in her representations than the seemingly affectless portrayal of us to believe. So, in the world of post-feminist chiclet, as we find it in the Malvier de Fédicinant, it's perhaps not quite the consumerist paradise that first appears. The idea of empowerment and agency through self-sexualization, with which we're invited to be complicit, is actually built on fear and exclusion of the grotesque other, and she can't quite repress the anxieties that are around, precisely by the very normative definition of the female body that she upholds, or the deeper fears that threaten momentarily to get beneath that smooth cosmetic exterior and introduce some meanings of the feminine that escape her control. But let's not end on a downer. Let's look at some nice pussy cats. <laughs> now, cats and paintings have very often used, as I'm told, to symbolise female sexuality. There they are, with mimics with cats like over here on the right hand side. Okay? Um, this is Camilla, the pussy. Right? So, sweet little helpless kitten, that's her sexuality. So, maybe. A little bit disappointing that that's the best that a female comics artist can do. So I'm going to end with another take on the pussy, which is just a bit more interesting.
So if this, this, this book is sold, it's not No, 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 the character. How the character. Well, the character's supposed to be himself. Yeah. It's in terms of like money is on the expense, but the whole idea of like equal pay and income right. in terms of what you can make for yourself. Does, does she ever. She shows herself as a graphic artist, in fact. Yeah, that, that's the job that she does, that oh, she portrays she herself as doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There is some quite interesting stuff about work relationships, actually. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, you know, this, this idea of empowerment replacing an analysis of power relations, I think, is yeah, deeply troubling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the presentation, um, one of the things I think is really exciting about comics is there's so many genres which haven't, the barely scratched the surface, they haven't really been covered. And I guess you could say that Chicklet is one of them. There's so many books, like novels like that out there. Yeah. There's not really much Chicklet comics, like you said. Um, I mean, I don't think that's something I absolutely want to read, but I mean, someone like, like my mum reads Chicklet. I think she doesn't read comics, but I was going to show her a comic that might be the kind of thing she would yeah. read. Do you think, in that sense, then there is a place within comics for this kind of stuff, even though it's not if to everybody's taste? Well, um, yeah, absolutely. That's fair enough. I, I think it's a bit ironic, though, that, I mean, for a long, long time, certainly in France, it's very difficult for women comics artists to get their work published at all. I mean, it was a massive kind of male publishing environment. And there are stories, Chantal Montelier, for example, a brilliant comics artist who's been working since the 70s, and she talks about how she tried to get her work published in a, in a quite radical uh, comics journal. And they said, oh, if you like, you can pose for, you know, artist girlfriend stuff. Um, so for a long time, women were kind of fighting against this very male-dominated milieu. And now, Nathan Sakaki clearly is massively high profile. So in a sense, that she's a, almost the face of, of winning comics and the face of alternative comics mm -hmm. in France. Yeah. So it's just it's a little bit ironic now that the, this major bestseller is this kind of you know because comics can do so many other things like comics and, and, and all she's doing is kind of recycling. But yeah, I mean I take your point. Yes, it's, it's a way maybe people read other stuff. And indeed, if you go to her website, you know she does have links to a lot of people whose work is massively more interesting, and she also. Has a little, um, yeah, she's a bit of, I don't know if she's still doing it, she has done some comic journalism in the past, uh, where she does talk about the work of other women comics artists, so she, she could very well be a way towards doing other people's work. Yeah. I, I was just thinking about the um, chick lit literature, that it's quite, it's dismissed, it's quite looked down on, isn't it? As prose, it's in the hierarchy of literature, it's sort of tabloidy, not recognised. And I just wondered if you think that's happening with, if we have a chick lit comic, a chick comic, or whatever you call it, if it's the same, if she's been... Well, I, I mean, I don't want to be kind of snobbish about chick lit, because there are so many female genres that people are snobbish about. And, and I mean, I think it's partly something to do with the fact that, she, that 
she recycles these kind of normative images. I mean, that's the thing that, that troubles me. I think a lot of chiclet, um, Bridget Jones, for example, you know, uh, is actually much more. Um, it's not just recycling stereotypes. I mean, it's doing a lot more than that. It's, and it's, and it's, wasn't it Alison Pearson? Oh, right. Wasn't it her who got really annoyed by being... Oh, by being called chicklets, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> because it was about a you know, working mother. Yes, right, yes. 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 Whereas that is something mm. different. This is... Yeah, I mean, there is a, there's a whole debate to be had, really, about... Um, whether whether chiclet is simply you know, kind of selling out or whether it's, whether it does have any kind of oppositional kind of radical edge to it. And I I think some of it does, but I I don't think Kenilworth's work does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was wondering if you count um Posey Sims work as being chiclet. Oh, no, not at all. No, by no means. No, no, no. No, I, it's critical and historical and but at the same time, she does deal with all of the kind of like subject matter of just the relationships and female gaze and, you know, the desire for women to be men and vice versa. Yeah, but, but from, a, from a much more personal angle from the standpoint, I mean, uh, no, I don't think she's going to do it. Then that's a piece that she would really look at, kind of, like, sort of using some of its uh, aspects to then more sort of literary work. Well, I, I think what she does, I mean, she takes certain literary genres I mean, Chiclet, I think, is, is a kind of slight variation. I mean, the, the ur-text of Chiclet is quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's more romantic, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think Cody Simmons uh, is, is deeply subversive, actually. Yeah. But this, this is... <laughs> She's a bit of the, the, the face of comic art now, you know, which is a little bit worrying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes, she's very well known. She's very well known. Yeah. 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 Massive best seller, very well known. But also, do you see in terms of her action image as well? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah she's very pretty, yes, and she's very media teaching it. One should take into account, I think, the fact that. Uh, she's become a celebrity yes. through the internet. That's so, yeah, in fact, yes, uh, I think a lot of people yes. 
uh, yeah. read uh, stuff. Yeah. Uh, actually, and especially women, uh, discover that there are actually uh, women doing comics about women's lives. Yeah. And yeah. probably maybe lots of those readers have never actually read the uh, yeah. comic by a woman before. Yeah. They think, oh, wow. <laughs> so in a way, yeah. I think it is probably an following. Yeah. In a way that maybe meant for, I mean, like, you know, when manga uh, was first started being published in France, there were a lot of uh, women's manga yeah, published. And it turns out that now there are quite, I mean, people say that about half of manga readers uh, in France are women. And they started doing their own comics. Yeah. So with the sheer act, of being a superstar woman coming out of it is in many ways empowering for, for women. Yeah, okay. It's better, I suppose, that women are doing this than that men are doing it. Francesca needs to see it. Yeah, I'm going to share it. Yes, of course. And a massive star in France. Yes. We drew women as protests. And they found yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, very much the, the opposite of what uh, yeah. they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And still a big player. Yeah. But did you take yourself serious? I mean, is it? Yeah. I mean, sure. Yeah, I'm sure. It's always light-hearted. It's always light-hearted. Yes, of course. Yeah. 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 Yes. But you don't always shopping and. For more information about Dr. Miller's work, please go to www.tinyurl.com stroke European Comics. Next, here's Carrie Franzman talking about her new graphic novel, The House That Groaned. My name's Carrie Franzman, and I know some of you, and I've talked here before, I think about two years ago, maybe a year and a half, a long, year, a long time ago when it was um, about a third of the size Lady Z comic, so it's brilliant to see so many people here today. Um, I've done talks about my book uh, sort of over the last month, so I'm trying to make this one a little bit different. Um, which may mean that it's not as rehearsed, which is a good thing. Um, so I'm going to talk a wee bit about the work I've done before this book and my interests, um, which actually fit very well after um, Anne's talk, because a lot of what I do is um, you know, kind of um, a less, I guess, academic take on women's bodies and, and feminist discourse, um, but in a, a comic-y way. So yeah, this was the stuff which I started doing early on. Um, I, I self-published in um, the underground indie comic scene in London. I'd go to all the conventions. I'd staple my work together and photocopy it secretly when I was supposed to be in the office, <laughs> as I'm sure loads of you guys do. Um, and this was one of the, the earlier things I produced, which was called All Consuming about a relationship between a, a man with a huge mouth and a girl with huge eyes. It's a very incompatible, tragic relationship. 
and it was based on autobiographical events, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, so this is the kind of uh, theme which I'm interested in, um, I guess the psychological um, inner turmoil displayed outwardly, magical realism, but essentially all the emotions kind of are, are very honest to my experiences. Um, I moved on to the, uh, this was a, a comic I did called My Supersonic Secret Sensor about when I wore a hearing aid when I was, um, I was younger, which is why if anyone has any questions, I might go, what, what, what? <laughs> That's why. So again, I'm kind of imagining my hearing loss as this, um, uh, my hearing aid, as this huge, big kind of um, industrial machine with a little mouse running around. Um, and from early on, I was playing with the boundaries of the medium. I was using different pictures to tell different stories. I wasn't sticking to one style. Um, I think, you know, the, the kind of style you use to convey your message is, is kind of like the style of writing you would use to draw an analogy. But um, then I went on and uh, got published at The Guardian, a comic strip at the back of G2. Um, and it was the first time I did um, kind of paid <laughs> paid comics. Before then, I'd been I'd been um, self-publishing. We had a stall in Camden. I'd go to all the conventions, um, and and I really wanted to uh, start making a living from it. So I thought, well, that's the most commercial space you can possibly fill. So I condensed my stories down into these little strips and sent them to. As they say, I sent them to 35 newspapers, and I got 34 rejections. <laughs> so if anybody goes, wow, how do you get into the Guardian? With a lot of uh, <laughs> thick skin and reject rejection, yeah. So um, if anybody ever wants to start submitting their work, I always say the first thing to do is get the writers and artists handbook. Um, you have to get the most up-to-date one, and just bug all the, uh, the editors in there. <laughs> oh, shit, they'll love it. So yeah, this one, it was all autobiographical, <coughs> all the stories in there, and that was a little bit um, exposing, I think, doing very autobiographical work. Um, nowadays, I do kind of more magic realism stuff. Um, I think a lot of people, I, I, I tried to pick stories which weren't just about me and my experiences, which but were relatable. I think that's kind of the most important thing if you're doing anything autobiographical, to think about your reader rather than your personal self-expression. If, if you want to, people to read it, you need to communicate. Um, and then I went on to do The Times, which was a 20-part serialised story in Times 2, and it was um, serialised once a week. Um, and it helped me kind of moving from a very small space to a larger space to a graphic novel. It kind of really taught me about the different qualities of each medium. Um, one thing I had to do with this, it was an ongoing story, so each um, strip had to have a cliffhanger at the end. Um, I also hid clues in it uh, in previous uh, uh, pictures, which would only make sense on later reading. But this um, story was called The Night I Lost My Love, and it was all about uh, another failed relationship. <laughs> um, and the kind of process by which you learn to let go of somebody. So 
um, this guy and girl go to the strange party. Um, she loses him and then journeys through the night to try and find what happened to him. So it's kind of on one level like a, a film noir, um, but on another level, um, it's, it's like, it's a process of um, a girl coming to terms with loss. And she meets all these strange characters along the way who all kind of look like versions of him. They're, they're like a child with blonde hair and green eyes. You can see he's a... One? <laughs> that one. <laughs> um, and there's like a woman character who's got the same hair as him. And there's um, a friend character, a kind of spiritual advisor. And in meeting each of these characters and letting go of them, she kind of comes to terms with um, those various attachments she has to him as the kind of cute baby, the maternal figure, the sexual being, those kind of things. And you can read that on my website, which is carriefranceman.com, in its entirety. Um, and then I started experimenting even more with the medium. Once I'd moved from these kind of um, different spaces, I started thinking about the definition of comics. Will Eisner described comics as sequential art. So I started thinking, well, um, how can you show moments in time across different mediums if art can be mosaic or sculpture or finger puppets, <laughs> finger puppet comic, right? Um, yeah, so I started playing with that and came up with, um, this was the first kind of comic sculpture I did. It was built in a jewellery box. I pulled out the drawers and stuck them on top. And it's called um, Death Do Us Part. It's about uh, a woman and man who, who cling to their mother, then they come together, find each other, cling to them, grow older, and eventually, um, he dies, so she digs him up and turns him into a hat stand. <laughs> See over there. Um, it's a little bit strange, <laughs> admittedly, but it was uh, supposed to be a kind of tongue-in-cheek um, kind of reflection of how we all have to end up alone eventually, even if you do find someone, if you're lucky enough to be with all your life. Um, but again, I was taking... I started off with the jewellery box, and I thought, how can I turn this into a narrative? Um, and so I, I saw it had a little mirror um, in a heart, and then it had this thin kind of draw at the bottom. And I thought, okay, that could be a kind of underground where a coffin is, and the heart is, you know, obviously about love. So I wanted to do a story about about love and death. So the narrative came from the boundaries of the the medium which I was using which is a kind of thing which I'm really interested in doing. Um, this is another one I did. Instead of the panels of a, a page, they were um, beds with a narrative across each of them. Um, and this was a comic I did across different frames, turning the, the frames of a comic into literal frames on a wall um, called uh, There I Am. There you are, rather based on the wherever you go, there you are, idea. Um, and this was the biggest piece I've done to date. But if I get funding, I will do bigger. <laughs> and this is set in uh, my childhood doll's house, which if you haven't seen before, you might recognize from the cover of my book. They're completely different stories. I just really like this idea of kind of voyeurism, looking through windows and um, 
seeing other people's lives. So, again, I thought, wow, wouldn't it be exciting to do a story in, um, in a doll's house where you can look through the windows as you would read the panels of a comic, top left to bo- bottom right. Um, so you sequentially read it um, left, yeah, left to right, left to right, left to right. And you read it by looking through the windows and you can kind of see the scenes inside. Um, so again, I took the elements of the doll's house to create the boundaries of the story I was going to tell. So um, the, the story is called Behind the Mirror and it's all about women's kind of um, self-image and uh, we look through the windows at this little kind of doll's house woman who you can see in kind of pink colours on the left hand side. She's this perfect little blonde doll's house girl. She sits in her room. We look in, we can see our eye reflected in her mirror on the other side of the room. She watches herself in a mirror. There's lots of pictures of women all around in the frames on the wall. Um, But then behind the mirror, Uh, in the second panel at the top, you can see uh, this kind of ethereal, aggressive woman watching from the other side, and it's a a double-sided mirror, and it kind of represents this kind of angry femininity. Um, It's also based on the Bloody Mary ghost myth, which is when you look in the mirror at midnight and you hold the candle up and you say, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. And she comes through the mirror and rips your eyes out. So if any of you, <laughs> couple of hours to midnight, have a few beers, go home, and see how many of you are artists after that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I like this idea of this kind of aggressive woman character. Um, so she's on the other side of the mirror, and she's kind of on this right-hand side of the doll's house, um, constantly watching this woman and drawing her. Um, and then uh, you can see in these scenes here, it doesn't end very nicely for Little Miss Bullpet girls, tragically. Um, but again, I was playing with the boundaries of, of the, the doll's house in creating the story. And I've got loads of other stuff I'm doing in this vein. Um, a lot of it with my aunt, who is an amazing craftsperson who makes quilts and stained glass. And so we're making a stained glass comic and a quilt comic at the moment. So again, using what kind of story would you tell in the quilt? Um, what kind of features of stained glass? The fact that it's transparent, the two sides, um, religious connotations, um, that kind of thing. So yeah. Um, and I also uh, do digital comics, uh, which I collaborate with with my boyfriend, who's called John Parkett. And... Um, Again, it's exactly the same as building something in a doll's house. It's just we're using the features of the emerging technology to tell the story. So this was an iPad and iPhone comic called First Witch, which we used a little gadget in the um, iPad called the accelerometer, which um, t- could detect the angle you're tilting the comic at. Um, so the stories were basically you re- read them by moving the comic up and down like this, it's as if you're looking through a window into another world. Um, and we're doing a lot more digital comic experiments, which uh, are playing with features of, of these emerging technologies like the touch screen, face recognition, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think, yeah, I'm really interested in this area. I think a lot of people are panicking with the move from um, digital to 
uh, kind of from books to digital, and they're thinking, <gasps> how are we going to shove all this pages of paper onto this new format? And they, you know, you, you come up with that kind of turn the page function. Um, you know, we'll maybe stick a video in here or a picture, but essentially it's just amounts of words. Whereas I think comics are really brilliant at uh, making that leap because they're essentially very visual and so they translate online um, and to digital formats much better. Um, yeah, so watch this space. We're planning the next year to create a lot more of these which are really taking the technology as a starting point for the narrative. This should be quite exciting. And that's uh, the first of which, if any of you have iPhones or iPads, it costs like a pound fifty or something, um, if you want to have a look at it. And Jonathan Plackett is the guy who does all the clever stuff. <laughs> I just do the drawings, I do the easy part. Um, and this, I think, first time I've ever shown this stuff in London so far, is... Um, uh, my most recent project, which I've been doing, um, I went to Russia um, as part of the Moscow Comic Festival, um, which they're running a, a project called Respect, which um, is funded by British Council, uh, Goethe Institute, European Union, and they're choosing, uh, they, they invited um, comic artists from Europe to come and kind of uh, have a look at the, the situation in Russia. Um, they have problems with sexism, racism, <laughs> xenophobia in general, um, and they wanted us to kind of translate this into a booklet for a kind of teenagers to 30 year old um, audience. And I came up with this story called uh, Confessions of a Little Fascist. It's all about this idea that we each have a kind of little fascist living inside of us, pulling in our organs. Um, so, yeah, that's. You can see that, I think, I'll put it up on my website pretty soon, but it is on the internet somewhere at the moment. Um, and also, this is my most recent sneak peek of what I'm doing um, for uh, this comic residency, which I won recently in Brussels, um, which is kind of, they're, they're inviting 10 artists again internationally based to uh, have a look at Brussels and, and what it means in Europe and, and to do comics, 12-page comic in response to that. So I'm doing this uh, story all about a magical five-euro note, which kind of... Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> the euro needs magic, right? <laughs> but um, it, it's kind of looking at our relationship with the things we buy but not on a grand scale of cars and holidays, just those little things which we need to get through the day. So, you know when you think, oh, I just need a coffee, just get a coffee and then I'll feel okay, and you have your coffee, and you just need a magazine, need something to distract me, you get a little newspaper, a magazine. You know, those kind of little things we constantly need to just make our days bearable. And so this five-year note gets passed from hand to hand and kind of grants people their most... Uh, deepest, darkest wish, but essentially it's just looking at our, our relationship with what we buy. So that's all the other stuff I've done. Um, and now um, I'll chat a wee bit about The House That Groaned. So this is published by Random House and 
all the nice things which people have said about it, including Paul Gravett, <laughs> who was bribed. No, he wasn't bribed. <laughs> I have yet to bribe him for it. Um, but I'll show you actually this. Let me show you this, which is nicer. Ah, will this work? Where is it gone? Okay, hold on. My computer does really funny things when I plug it into places. There we go. So this is, um, again, made by my very clever boyfriend. <laughs> I don't take any responsibility for it. But um, I'll chat a wee bit about the book and what it's about around this kind of uh, gizmo, which you can see at thehousethatgrown.com. Um, so the house, uh, the story is all about a house, obviously. <laughs> can you work that one out? And um, it's called, it's 141 Rotten Road, and it's a Victorian um, apartment block full of six one-bedroom apartments. Um, and they house six um, inhabitants who have very specific relationships with their bodies. Um, so on the outside, the house is, is lovely, but on the inside, it's slowly decaying, like we all are. And it's got those kind of... Um, electricity failing and uh, cracks are forming and um, each of these incidents are kind of like the tick of a clock bringing us slowly towards the inevitable um, and and they bring the, the lonely residents out of their isolated apartments into contact with each other so um, Barbara, one of the residents notes this, there's a leak in her roof and she'll go upstairs and bang on the, the upstairs neighbour's door and they'll interact um, and they're kind of pretty weird bunch. Um, I'll introduce you to uh, Barbara, who's the first one. That's Barbara. Um, she's the most normal of the bunch, and um, I call her the living doll. Let me put this on full screen, if I can. Anyone know the shortcut F1? Maybe? Mm, anyone? F11. F11. Okay, so let's try that one. No? Yeah, it's not going to work for us. Oh well, you've got a little bar at the top. Um, we meet Barbara just as she moves into apartment 3 in 141 Rotten Road. She's a bit of a Barbie, spending all the time in waxing sunbeds and makeup. But then, being a girl is hard work for anyone. She longs to find a man who can stop judging her outward appearance and realise it's what's on the inside that counts. Then she meets her shy, eccentric neighbour, Matt. Perhaps he can handle her secrets. Oh. Let me see her there putting on her makeup. Um, and again, it's this kind of idea of inside and outside, which I'm quite interested in. I think following a lot of what Anne was saying about um, gender being a performance and a masquerade, and this idea of a inauthentic self. Um, so yeah, that's that's her character. A lot of these um, characters are based on series, which I first discovered when I studied sociology and psychology at university. I didn't do an art degree or anything, I'm self-taught, so um, I'll tell you a wee bit about that in a wee bit. <laughs> Paul, you can be in charge of the sound effect. <laughs> um, this is Matt, the retoucher who can't touch. Matt is a freelance retoucher who banishes blemishes from photos of models in magazines. By day he creates the perfect woman, and by night he seeks her. But there is always some stray hair or spot in the way. 
He feels thickened by the imperfect world and wears gloves so as not to have to touch it. But one day, a perfect woman moves in across the hall. Her name is Barbara, but can Matt overcome his traumatic past and reach out to her? There he is. The answer is probably not. <laughs> Boiler alert! <laughs> Then we've got down here is, um, you can all do it together. <laughs> it might generate some hot air in this room. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> so we're getting a little tidy room to stand No beer, I hope. <laughs> One man down. <laughs> There's a chair at the front. Go on. <laughs> so this is Janet, she's the tormented dietitian. Janet is a divorced dietitian living in apartment two. She is a woman in control who attributes her own six stone weight loss to mind over matter. But each night at 12 o'clock exactly... Oh, ah, oh no, can we read it again? No, we have to go back down. Whoosh! <laughs> 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 she is woken by a phone call from a group of women who call themselves the Midnight Feast Front. They feast down the phone and whisper a recipe Nigella Lawson style. <laughs> Janet is driven mad by the sound of squelching jam donuts and slurp jelly. Who are these savage women and what do they want from her? You can see there the Midnight Feast Front going, Hello, Janet. It's the Midnight Feast Front. We're sinking our teeth into a rump stick. I had to listen to the food porn ads, you know, the Marks and Spencer one. This is not just steak, this is a rump steak. <laughs> I did, I listened to a lot of them, and it's really not appealing. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then you, you finally uh, meet these savage women, um, and they're run by Marion, who's Midnight Feast front woman. Marion lives a life of hedonism, holding secret midnight feast orgies of food and wine in her flat. She finds clothes restrictive and, restrictive and sees diet as self-mutilation. Marion believes she is helping to free all bodies from society's shackles, but as she begins to grow and grow, perhaps it is her body who is taking control. Here are the wee glimpse of these savage women. Bad women! <laughs> Um, and then we have <laughs> the disease file. Brian is your typical 20-something bloke, always on the prowl for women. Only his favourite pickup spots are not bars and clubs, but doctors' waiting rooms and hospices. For Brian is inextricably attracted to diseased women. But with many of his lovers meeting their untimely demise, can Brian ever settle down and find something more long-lasting? And there he is, having his wicked way with a woman who's uh, not pretty well. Um, then we have, finally, for the last time, the grandmother who blends into the background. Mrs. Demi Durbach is a timid 91-year-old. Well, go away. See, when I click on that, it's just going to 
um, who is one of the characters, the grandmother who literally blends into the background. She is hiding in, in this uh, frame, so I'll show it again at the end, and if anyone can spot it, they can receive a second piece of Sarah Lightman's cake. <laughs> um, yes, so um, Janet and Marion, uh, we kind of met them earlier, and they both um, reflect this idea that I talked of earlier of um, a rise in both anorexia and obesity in society at the moment, um, which seems a bit of a oxymoron. Um, but they kind of represent this idea of, of these two two sides in, in each woman's body kind of struggling for, for control. Um, and I think to some extent in, in men's bodies as well, because it's a very capitalist idea. On one hand, you've got this... Um, oh, yeah, in fact, before I go into that, Susan Bordeaux, uh, again, <laughs> mentioned by Anne, <laughs> um, discussed some of these ideas in Unbearable Weight, um, which I read. And she talks a lot about the hungry woman as well in society, which is really interesting. Um, the idea of it being kind of a very controversial uh, figure uh, to be this woman who eats and eats and how it's often got sexual undertones as well. So yeah, in society we have the, the Nigella Lawson, who's a kind of grotesque um, Marion really, who's constantly tempting us to eat more. And then in, in contrast to that we have Gillian uh, McKeith, <laughs> who's constantly telling us to exercise restraint and, you know, um, you know, gain control. And, you know, um, Susan Bordeaux said you can see this in any magazine. These kind of caricatures represent the dichotomy, but flipping through any magazine, on one side you have people saying, indulge, treat yourself, L'Oreal, because you're worth it. And then on the other side, you've got this kind of, you know, gain control, Nike, you know, do it, get control of yourself. Um, so, yeah, it's quite, uh, and, that, and that is part of the reason she thinks uh, there's a rise in anorexia and obesity. Um, and this is uh, Mrs. Durbach, who is the grandmother who literally blends into the background, who we couldn't meet earlier. Um, she was hiding from us, ironically. So, yeah, she... She, you find each of the characters are kind of these grotesque stereotypes. Um, and then throughout the book, you leave the house, the confines of the house, and you find out um, about their backstory through flashbacks. And um, it's kind of like, I wanted it to pay homage a little bit to the kind of grand tradition of um, superhero comics. You have like the Joker or the Penguin, these horrible grotesque people, but then you find out how they became the way they are. Um, so Mrs. Darbuck, she grew up in the Scottish Highlands. Um, she was very much a kind of uh, a one with her environment, um, running around among the trees and heather. Um, but now she's she's 91. She's stuck in a flat in the very top floor of the house, and uh, she's taken to blending into her background like a moth with um, bark patterned wings. So she continuously hides throughout the book, and um, you can read the book as with many comics, um, in a linear way, but then also you can, uh, once you've understood this character, you can then go back and find she's hidden all throughout the book. So you get a different kind of reading the second time. Um, you can see if you can spot her here. You got her. <laughs> she's uh, swinging up in the wardrobe in her dead husband's gown. A little depressing. <laughs> Um, and she, the kind of theory which inspired her is um, Norbert Elias's civilizing process. Um, he's a 
really interesting sociologist who I was kind of really inspired by. Um, and he talked about this idea that in uh, the medieval time, we were much more open to our environment. Um, everybody shared one pot of food. They defecated and farted in public. Um, the, there was, they're much more exposed to death. Um, the world kind of went in with them and out them. And he, he described this phenomena as kind of a homo, um, a parity, which was an open man. Uh, so I've got a charming drawing here of uh, <laughs> what a homo parity would be. Um, not very appetizing. And he thinks increasingly with this. Um, actually, you can you can see I've, I've got this uh, image here. You can see a lot in medieval art, um, kind of carnival caricatures. This idea um, coming up again of um, bodies which were open orifices and blending into the environment. Um, you see some really horrible, freaky brooms sticking out of people's bums, big mouths, and like, again, you know, uh, the heads becoming the, um, the, uh, the hills and the windmills, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think it's quite interesting parallel with what you can achieve in comics, because the carnival caricatures were considered quite lowbrow and unsophisticated, and um, there were comics sometimes. <laughs> um, so, oops. Yeah, and what what Norbert Elias said was nowadays people were becoming less and less like homo apparati, and they're becoming homo clausus, which is a closed human. Um, and this idea that nowadays uh, we live in more complex societies, people feel very detached from each other, we're incredibly embarrassed about um, bodily functions, sniffing or sneezing in public is considered rude, um, you know, this idea that all, what we share as humans is con continuously uh, being separated. So I think what I was trying to do with um, Mrs. Durbach is kind of show this idea that we actually we are part of our environment much more than we'd like to believe. Uh, we see ourselves as contained here, but you know, environment is constantly coming in and out of us through birth and death and what we eat. But again, these are really complicated theories, and I do touch on it better in um, this video, which I'll put up. Um, but yeah, so check out the com comics forum on Friday, and it will be there in its entirety. Um, so. I just want to give you a little taste of the kind of series which, which this is based on, but I'd like to say that it wasn't, it isn't just a textbook um, description of these theories in comic book form. I really wanted to tell a good story and explore some of these ideas of, of our social body um, in, in the book and tell just essentially an, uh, a heartfelt story. But um, I'm, I'm leaving finally with uh, this, which is, I know you guys like a little bit of process, um, how does she draw it? <laughs> so I, I stuck in one of these. Um, I start off with uh, a script. Um, so here I've got a, a part of the story, which is Janet cannot concentrate, surrounded by the feast of her dreams and nightmares. Plates of golden pies glisten in the candlelight. Pyramids of jelly wobble over her head. Bacchanalian women lounge around, feasting on food and each other. They close on, in on poor Janet, bearing dripping plates of oysters and oozing puddings. Janet doesn't stand a chance. So it starts off as a, as a kind of um, synopsis, basically, of the whole story, and not necessarily in script format. And then I go on to scamping it up. Um, it's very small, just this is half of an A4 page, really. 
I actually have a stage before this when I really scribble it out really roughly. Um, I've got some pictures, but I don't know if I've got time to hand them around, so I know I've been yabbering on. Um, so yeah, it goes on, it goes on to this. I, I stamp out the whole book really, really simply, even more simply than this, and then I kind of decide how it's going to look. The one tip which I have, which um, I don't know, I find really useful, and you guys might if you're creating it, is um, I go through, once I've decided what's going to happen on each page, I then create a kind of reference uh, book. And I, you know, for example, here I need to know uh, what different food stuff looks like, uh, positions of, of women, uh, physical, you know, uh, quite a voluptuous women. So I just go through, like, on um, using references on online Google images and sketch loads of little sketches chronologically, which I'll need throughout my book. So loads of references of women eating, loads of references of, of larger women, loads of references of different food types they could be eating. And I just draw them, like, non-stop. And, and that way it kind of, um, when it comes to draw the final thing, I can just check these references rather than always going to the computer. And it allows me to kind of be creative as I'm doing these wee sketches. I'll show you. I've got it in my book, uh, bag if you're interested in looking at that. Um, then I get onto the inking stage, which is all done with a brush pen and a little just um, fine liner. And finally, colouring. And it's all colouring done on the computer. I scan in um, inked pages, which I do by hand, and then colour on the computer. And part of the reason which I chose this colour scheme was because I suffered from massive RSI after doing my um, Times story. So it was easier <laughs> to do it this way. <laughs> um, yeah. And this is the website if you're interested in making your own fishy noises in the confines of your own room <laughs> and find out what the hell's going on in that top left window uh, thehouseofgrown.com and um, that's my website and it's got my the time story all the strips I did for the guardian and loads of all of my like warts and all creations from when I first did a comic ever up there so feel free to delve and thank you very much for listening really loudly because I can't hear anything in this room. Death by trifle is something which happened in the story. <laughs> but um, no it's not all of those all of those that we had loads of fun coming out with those titles. Um, but they're all fake. Okay. Yeah. And you you can click through to some of my earlier work on some of them. I like the dining ad nauseum though. Draw, um, 
and I already had the idea for it and pretty much I knew what was going on when I when I approached the publishers and it took um, pretty much a year to well, at least like six months plus to, to sign with a, a publisher I was having lots of meetings and choosing agents and that sort of thing um, then it was the actual just drawing was was a year and then a, about another half a year in terms of production at the end so it feels like it was huge and really long and I'm really keen to do shorter stories now um, I don't know my, my advice would be don't do 200 pages if you're doing your own graphic novel do 150 <laughs> 50 pages off makes a massive difference Hey. 
by Bling. Um, I like that colour. It's everywhere. <laughs> I like this idea. I mean, oh, well, God, I mean, it was a time thing, definitely, with the colour. Um, but also, I quite like the, the simplicity of it. And uh, for, for me, the kind of cover, this idea, you know, I'm obsessed with when you're walking at really kind of, you know, when the sky is indigo blue, just past twilight, and you can see all these yellow windows. Um, I love that. I absolutely love it. I love like looking through the window, like if you're on the, the overground, actually, you can see it really well, and you go past these houses, and you catch like little glimpses of people's lives. So I really wanted to kind of try and capture that, which I'll always be trying to capture it unsuccessfully, but that's, that's where that blue came from, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, <laughs> I was really lucky um, for that they, that Random House actually com complied with that. Um, yeah, I um, when I submitted my pitch to them, I actually like hand cut out all these little bloody windows, um, and I, I really wanted it to be. I used to work as a creative advertiser, so I really wanted it to be kind of this voyeuristic thing which you see and and want to look into, um, and this idea also of kind of um, revealing the inside. I was telling you that that's, that's kind of quite a strong theme of the book: the outside appearance and inside bodies were very fixated on the physicality, but they're the whole guts and gore inside them, which we don't think about. So that was the idea. And I was very lucky that they, they did such a great job on it. It doesn't break. I've tried throwing it around the place. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you want a book, uh, Fiona's over there, and she'll sell it at a vastly reduced price. But thank you so much. For more information about The House That Groaned, please go to www.thehousethatgroaned.com and for more information about Carrie's comics in general, please go to www.carriefranzman.com That's K-A-R-R-I-E-F-R-A-N-S-M-A-N Com. Ladies Do Comics is curated by Sarah Lightman and Nicholas Streeton, and the next meeting takes place on Monday the 19th of March at the Rag Factory on Heniage Street off Brick Lane in London, where their guests will be the alumni of the London Print Studio in Harrow Road, who have just brought out a compilation called Parallel Lives, and that's on Monday the 19th of March from 6.30pm. There are also a variety of recordings of Ladies Do Comics events available online as podcasts at ladiesdopodcasts.wordpress.com. These include Brian and Mary Tolbert about their graphic novel Daughter of Her Father's Eyes, which contrasts the coming-of-age narratives of Lucia Joyce, daughter of James, and author Mary Tolbert, daughter of the Joycean scholar James S. Atherton. Other podcasts include Flemish cartoonist Judith Van Istendal talking about her semi-autobiographical graphic novel Dance by the Light of the Moon, Women's Auxiliary Air Force member Eileen Cassavetti in discussion with myself and her daughter Francesca who published her wartime diary in comic book format, and Myriad publisher Corinne Perlman talking about her work for the Jewish Quarterly as well as her design and editorial work for Comic Company which produces healthcare information in comic strip format. 
You can find all of those and many more at laydezdopodcasts.wordpress.com. Previous booklist podcasts, more info at ladiesdocomics.com. That's L-A-Y-D-E-E-Z-D-O-C-O-M-I-C-S dot com. Ladies Do Podcast was recorded, introduced, and edited by Alex Fitch, and there'll be a new episode online next month. Thanks for listening.